This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Keeping Human Relationships Together, A Self-Guide to Healthy Living, Studies in Spiritual Psychology Vis-a-Vis Human Values. And the author is Anthony Wachuku, and Anthony joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Anthony. Hello, how are you? Good to have you with us now. I'm going to read what you have written concerning your book. You say in, in a short introduction, you've written it this way, this book is a life GPS system, the action alert tonic that keeps you focused on the right paths of life. It is a clarion call for radical change, offering the best skills, one can always employ to enjoy one's life. So what you're talking about here, Anthony, is your book is about how to be happy, it sounds like to me. That is it. How to, be ha- is, how to, how to achieve happiness every day of your life, right? Um, happiness is a very delicate um, word. You can't have happiness when you do not have truth justice and peace. The basis for happiness is goodness. If you are spiritually connected to your life, to your environment, to the people around you, you drive goodness from there. And when goodness becomes the foundation for happiness, happiness lasts. But when happiness is based on bad lifestyles it doesn't it doesn't um, last now you're a professor of psychology yes so you've been involved in this area most of your professional life of course so obviously there's a lot of books written about human relationships why write another book anthony why write your book um undoubtedly many authors have attempted to promote the need to keep human relationships healthy in different levels. But this very book, Keeping Human Relationships Together, is the life GPS. It does not only promote the same objective, but it also goes to the root of the illusions, projections, and assumptions that impact negatively on its attainment. It is one thing to tell a man, an unreliable husband, to stop deceiving himself, his wife, or family, but another to find out why this particular person has this bad habit and the best management skills, strategies that can be employed to bring him to normal. So we can learn these kinds of skills, you're saying, and that's what your book is about, pointing out the different things that we can learn to just have a better life. Of course. These aren't a secret. They're, they're just, uh, I mean, they're, you're, you're applying them in your own unique way from your life experiences and all your counseling. You see uh, it very clearly to you. Of course. So what would Absolutely. You- what would you say, Anthony, uh, is the most important thing? You talked about goodness. Uh, what, what do you mean by goodness? Goodness is being in touch with yourself, in touch with your environment. Goodness is spiritual connectedness. Having spiritual connection, tapping into your own energy, trusting your energy, and the capacity or the ability to live. i give you an example. Do you think there is any magic or miracle in a relationship one is not ready to maintain or keep, 
Or can a man expect his wife, to be honest, when he is greedy and selfish? It is only when this person respects himself that he can value the need to respect other people. And then if you have these right values, values of right choices, decisions, and behaviors, definitely you will intend to tend to enjoy goodness in your life. And goodness is eternal. It's not ephemeral. It's not transient. It's not um, momentary. It's something that keeps you moving irrespective of the upheavals of life. We have to be honest with ourselves, I hear you say. That's what I'm hearing yeah. you saying. We have to look in the mirror and really be honest with ourselves. Of course. Of course. What about, tell us about how long you can be happy with another person just based on a physical attraction or even sex. Let me tell you one thing. According to Heraclitus and Paul Tillich, and I buy, I by their philosophies, that in the paradoxical coexistence of the good and the, the bad, um, happiness, if you like, love, sleeps in the same bed with hatred. In other words, you can be happy with the other person in as much as you are open, because the human body the center of openness. If you remain open to the other person, the relationship will continue to grow. But if you employ elements of deceit in it, definitely you cannot befriend or relate to somebody you deceive. You can't. The person may not know that you are deceiving him or her, but as long as you know that you are deceiving this person. You cannot build any healthy relationship with that person, and you, you will not be happy. The person may be happy, but you will not. This is why it cannot last, since there is element of deception in it. What kind of a role does religion play in our happiness? Um, to be honest with you, religion is not a choice of chance. Religion is not an option for heavenly rewards. You can be happy without religion. You can be happy without religion. There was what Benson Hubbard calls remembered awareness. These are the eternal energies, the eternal memory system, power manifestation of an individual. You don't give it to somebody else. You have it yourself. You build it up with your healthy life patterns. So, if you are not healthy in your life, spiritually, you can't talk of bringing religion. But if you see religion as an aspect of a way of life that can help you integrate the values around you, all the values, the good values around you, into what you do, religion becomes but as long as a lot of people today see religion as a cafeteria, I mean, this um, cafeteria type of religion, where you choose, you pick what aspect of religion to practice or what aspect of religion to, to, to not to practice, this is hypocrisy. If you want to practice religion, first of all, you have to imbibe the values of truth justice and peace, because there is no peace without justice. And you cannot talk of justice without truth. Therefore, keep religion out of the scene now. Live good life. And that's why an atheist is also a child of God. Somebody who doesn't believe in religion can say, go to heaven. This is why this book is very important at this time of um, religious masquerading. Well, that's why you call this a self-guide to healthy living, and it's based on human values, uh, goodness, and 
keeps coming this word honesty keeps coming to my mind as you speak anthony that we really have to be honest with ourselves that's the bottom line absolutely absolutely now what about this statement you said everybody has some broken suitcases don't expect an ideal relationship from any partner sure and that is why if you have done your best in any relationship do not expect rewards go ahead doing the right thing if you think you are doing this primarily to please the other definitely you are going to be disappointed because Research has proved that it doesn't matter how diligent you are in a relationship, you can, surprises are part of life. Surprises will be there. And that is why go ahead, do the best you think that can be done in any relationship, expect no rewards. Because each person behaves through to type and, and has some broken cases some issues to deal with. Even though you are happy in a relationship, there are so many relationships in a particular relationship, so many histories in a particular relationship. Therefore, you have keep to stay on your lane and respect other people's lane. That is it. That's the bottom line. And someone might call those suitcases, broken suitcases, skeletons in the closet, right? Definitely because um, nobody, nobody, that's why I mentioned the paradoxical coexistence of good and bad. Somebody may be good. There are elements of badness in that same person. Man is a bundle of possibilities. He's capable of doing anything, good or bad. So you don't expect an ideal relationship from any human being based on these facts. And, of course, uh, relationships are not dependent on material things, you say. Of course, because material things perish. If you depend, if you base your your relationship with your wife or her attraction on her the way she dresses, what happens when the attraction fades? Remember, love can be affected by events or circumstances, but the word love does not change. Therefore, if you base your love for your wife on attractions, definitely. The, lo- the love is not going to last. But that's why if you are going to relate with somebody, be prepared to stomach, accept whatever comes in that relationship, good or bad. You hold Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ, up as a model. Now, why do you do that? Why is she a model? In fact, right from my childhood, I've seen Mary, the mother of Christ, as a model. And I've experienced her, her in my life. I've experienced her in my life. Whenever I have serious problems in my life and call on her, she has always assisted. And again, remember what happened at Cana in Galilee. She was not invited for that wedding at Galilee. She came all the same. Did Jesus not know that they lacked wine? Jesus must have known that they had no wine. Mary was the person who requested to assist the human condition. And then when the son turned her request down, she insisted, do whatever my son tells you to do. As if to say, she knew what the son had in mind. When the son had already told her, it is not time for me to do my father's business. And now, Mary insisted, and Jesus did her business. I started to do it from that very day. And that's why I invited humanity, society, to make Jesus our, our own hour. The hour of restoration, hour of um, change, radical change, hour of goodness, economic prosperity, religious relevance. So we have to take responsibility for our own happiness, as you put it. Your destination is in your hands. Definitely. We are our own relationships. We tell people how to relate with us. We teach people how to address us. If you do not fix your shoes, you don't expect other people to fix it for you. It is only when you have 
Fifth, your own shoe that you can assist others to fix their own. You may be two in a relationship, but you don't expect your partner to do everything for you. You have got to cooperate in all the exigencies and all the happenings of the family. Make sacrifices and then help out in everything that has to be done. We are our own relationships. The way you make your bed, this is the way you're going to land on it. Anthony, tell us how to get your book. And right now, iUniverse.com has my book. Amazon.com has my book. And um, if you type type in the title of my book, you can reflect in so many booksellers. But for now, Amazon is selling my book. iUniverse is selling my book. Graduate Choloka Foundation, an affiliate of Oxford University, is also selling my book. Well, Anthony, we appreciate talking with you about keeping human relationships together, your new book. Uh, You have uh, a whole career in counseling, psychology, and we appreciate this time with you, Anthony. I'm so happy to have you, too. That was Anthony Wachuku. He is the author of his book, Keeping Human Relationships Together, Self-Guide to Healthy Living, Studies in Spiritual Psychology Vis-a-Vis Human Values. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Average Doug, My Take on America, From Politics and Government to Society. And the author is Douglas Kemmerer. And Douglas joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Doug. Hi, how are you? Good to have you with us. Now, I'm going to read a little bit what you have written about your book, just to give an overview, and then we'll get into the details. You've written... This book is written by an average American who feels that the government is not following the will of the people. And you will also say that you've divided your book into two parts. The first part of the book with your thoughts on politics and government in America, including a lot of the latest things that are in the news, the government bailouts, uh, fairness doctrine, the, the nanny state, as you call it. And then the second part of the book deals with your thoughts on society today. 
including how society is rewarding bad behavior. So obviously very comprehensive book, uh, your feelings about what's going on in government and in the and in today's society, written by an average guy, you call yourself Average Doug. Well, Average Doug, why would you write this book? Well, I wanted to write this book exactly how you said, that the government is not following the will of the people. I mean, just look at the health care bill. Most of Americans don't want government bureaucrats telling people what kind of health insurance they can buy, what kind of doctor they can go to. Look at the bailouts. Nobody wanted the bailouts or the stimulus package. I mean, look at the Tea Party movement that I support. If you look at the Tea Party movement, which is of average Americans, they don't want all this government spending. I mean, it's ridiculous that they're charging future generations with all this debt, and nobody wants it. So they're not following the will of the people. I mean, Washington is not listening to the people right now. How did you form your political philosophy, Doug? I guess um, I would form, I formed it at an early age. My mom was pretty much my, um, it's pretty much conservative, so I followed her more than my dad. Uh, My dad's a little bit more liberal, and um, I had been a big fan of Reagan since, President Reagan, since I can remember. So I guess I started forming it at an early age. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the different, uh, the different issues that you raise in your book. Now, as we've already mentioned, and you mentioned bailouts, uh, you say that bailouts are rewarding failure. Oh, exactly. I mean, look at, look at the way that GM has been run. I mean, they make, they're making products that nobody wants to buy, and they're losing money, and yet the government and decided to reward them by giving them a bailout even though they didn't deserve a bailout. I look at AIG, Fannie and Freddie Mae. These, gov- these businesses were run terribly, and instead of being allowed to fail, declare bankruptcy, and restructure, the government just said, you know what, we'll give you money to bail you out. You don't have to change a thing. It's rewarding bad behavior, irresponsible behavior. It's rewarding um, failure, basically. But the government would say, if we hadn't have done that, Obama would say, if we didn't do what we did, then the whole financial system would collapse. Well, it depends on who you talk to. I mean, declaring bankruptcy, it doesn't mean that you're going out of business. It just means you have to restructure the way that your business is run, and that's not failure. That's just starting over again. And it, it seems that instead of being allowed to start over again, looking at your bottom line seeing, well, this part of uh, General Motors isn't working, we need to abandon this, and we need to start with this. It seems like instead of doing that and looking over their fine line, they decided to just say, all right, we'll just give you the money you need and you don't have to start over again. And it seems that it's going to be caught. What happens in 10 years if GM needs to do the, needs another bailout? Are we going to give them another bailout? That's what it seems to be. It's like we're rewarding constant failure. It'd be like another five years, do we need another bailout for GM and Chrysler? If Doug started a business, you're saying probably the government wouldn't come to your rescue. Yeah, and I wouldn't want the government to come to my rescue either. If I needed a situation where I had to declare bankruptcy, that's not the end all of everything. Look at uh, companies that have uh, declared bankruptcy, and then within five years... They've come back again. A lot of small businesses have had to declare bankruptcy. They restructure and they start over again. Bankruptcy is not the end of everything. It just is a new beginning. Do you feel the government is listening to you, Doug, as you as an individual citizen? Would they, are they really listening to you? You're a man who sounds very reasonable to me and sounds like you've done your homework. Well, I try to do my homework, and I try to follow every issue uh, as greatly as I can, and I don't feel the government's listening to me. For example, um, I, would not ha- I did not support the stimulus money package. I did not support the health care bill because I feel that the individual should have control of their own health care plan and not the government, and you shouldn't be fined if you don't want to have a health care plan. 
So I would feel the government isn't listening to me. I mean, look at all the spending um, that Washington's racking up. There seems to be controversy in the news about this word socialism. Uh, Obama doesn't like the word, doesn't like to be painted as a socialist, and yet you hear many calling him a socialist. Uh, what's your view of it? Well, I think Obama is definitely leaning towards so, uh, being a socialist. Just look at his policies, where he wants government takeover. We have government takeover of the banks, the auto industry. We're starting to have it of the healthcare industry. If you look at the def- if you look under the definition of socialism, that's what it is. He wants to turn America into a Western European socialist state where government is in charge. We we have freedom, but we don't have economic freedom the way that we used to have in America. Look at all the taxes and spending. That's just like European socialism coming to America. So I would definitely say. Even though he doesn't like it, President Obama tends to be and is a socialist. You also talk about the courts and that the courts uh, no longer follow their constitutional limitations. They, in your words, they've become legislatures. Oh, yes, they have. I mean, look at the two examples I used in my book. Kilo versus Connecticut is a great example of how the court decided that they were going to overrule um, the uh, legislature and said, well, we think that since the um, property is going to be used for more income and revenue to the city, that we're going to get rid of the people that are on the property, the house, and we're going to put a bigger business there because it's going to be more revenue. I mean, look at all the court decisions. It's... Um, it seems like the court wants to be a third part of wrong another legislature in society. I mean, look at the decision now where detainees, I write it in my book, detainees can appeal um, their, uh, their decision in military tribunals, definitely. You have a chapter where it's titled, Thank You, Arlen Specter." Oh, yeah, let me get into this. This is a great He chapter. must be your favorite guy. No, I'm not. And anyone that's listening in Pennsylvania, vote Pat Toomey this year. We need to defeat Arlen Specter. Arlen Specter, as you know, was a Democrat. He became a Republican, and then he became a Democrat again last year when he noticed that he could be the 60th vote in the Senate. Now, I go back a long way. Arlen Specter was a, voted against Robert Bork, Justice Bork, who would have been one of the best justices the Supreme Court would have had. As I mentioned earlier, if... Bork had been on the court instead of Kennedy. Kilo versus Connecticut would have been the other way, and we would have had a great victory against eminent domain, and detainees at Gitmo would not have been able to appeal their status in U.S. court. And um, what ha- it's amazing that um, a year before, in 1986, before Bork was nominated, Justice Antonin Scalia was nominated, and Republicans had control of the Senate, and it was uh, 98-0, um, Scalia got confirmed, and Scalia, who was probably just as conservative as Bork, Specter voted for. But a year later, when the Democrats were in control, not only did he vote against um, Bork, he led the charge against Bork. And it seems pretty hypocritical that within a year you can change your mind like that. And then a couple years later, you can vote for Justice Thomas. So it seems like he's the kind of politician that people are angry about in Washington. It's also amazing that with um, before, um, when Republicans were in charge, he was for card check. And now that Republicans aren't, he's against it because it's kind of close to election time and you know, he's trying to show that he's a Republican without being a Republican. He's just one of these politicians that seems to be out for himself than uh, out for what's best for people in Pennsylvania. If you had the opportunity to sit down with President Obama face-to-face, what would be some of the questions you would like to ask him? Oh, I write that in my book. Oh, this is great. This is why I wrote it, because I would love to one day talk to um to uh, President Obama, but I doubt the way that I, the way I wrote this book that I would ask um, 
that I would ever get to sit down with him. But uh, I have a couple. I would ask him, you, um, why do you feel that the stimulus package is working? I mean, you said that if we didn't pass it, unemployment would be at would top off at eight percent. But yet we passed it, and it's almost at ten percent. I would also ask him. You um, said five days before the election, you said we are five days away from fundamentally changing this country. What did you mean by fundamentally changing the country? How would you fundamentally change America? Then I, um, I would want to ask him, you had said that you, um, in a YouTube debate on CNN, you said that you wanted to have uh, talks with uh, Ahmadinejad, Hugo Chavez, um, without any preconditions. Do you still feel this way? I mean, even though that these leaders mock you at every turn, look what recently happened with uh, President Obama saying if we ever got attacked cyberly or chemically uh, with a chemical attack that he wouldn't respond with nuclear weapons. And Dr. Zinnishad just laughed at Obama like whatever and was just laughing and didn't seem to take him seriously. And I would also ask him... Um, how do you feel about our military? I mean, it seems like he always seems to bash the military at certain aspects when he's speaking, and at times in the past he's talked about our military. I would ask him how he feels about the military, and I would also ask him how he feels about the rich because he seems to be always attacking people that are successful in this country as well. And I would ask him this question, um, why when, um, the, remember when, um, we had the terrorist attack at Fort Hood, he said he didn't want to comment without knowing all the facts, yet when his professor friend, Henry, Henry Louis Gates, was arrested in his own home, he commented on the case without knowing all the facts. Why, why did you decide to comment on the Henry Louis Gates case and not the Fort Hood case? when you didn't know both the facts in all these questions, um, in these cases, you didn't know all the questions, you didn't know the answers to the questions, and yet you decided to comment on the Henry Louis Gates case and not the, um, the Fort Hood case. And I would ask him, what gave you the, the authority as president to fire the CEO of General Motors as well? And I would probably ask him how it feels about America, because... In the past, he said that we're an arrogant country. We know it can be number one in the world. So those are basically questions I would ask President Obama. Doug, we have about a minute left. Uh, one final question. Uh, give us your take on Fox News. Just a minute left. I like Fox News. To me, it seems to be the only balanced network. I watch Fox News. I watch Hannity, O'Reilly, Beck. Um, I watch Geraldo. I watch Greta. I, I watch Chris Wallace. I see, I enjoy Fox News. It's not just conservatives because Geraldo, Greta, Chris Wallace aren't conservative. But when they're on Fox News, they seem that they talk about the news. They don't give their opinion unless it's an opinion thing, and then they'll say, here's my opinion. So I, I enjoy Fox News more than I enjoy MSNBC and CNN. Doug, tell us how to get your book. It can be bought at iUniverse.com, Amazon.com, and BarnesandNoble.com. Do you have a website? I have a uh, Twitter page that you can follow me on at twitter.com slash drk4043. Well, Doug, we appreciate all your political insights uh, from, uh, as you call yourself, an average citizen, uh, average Doug. Thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Uh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. My, my pleasure. Have a good day. That was Doug Kammerer. He is the author of his book, Average Doug, My Take on America from Politics and Government to Society. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station.
Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool what Gives is available at WhatGivesBook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Believing the Unbelievable, Surviving the Cruelty of the Christian Brothers Regime, and the author is Benjamin Franklin, and Benjamin joins us now on this special interview brought to you by Trafford Publishing. Hello, Ben. Hello. Well, first of all, Benjamin Franklin, I'm sure that that name always raises a lot of curiosity when they hear your name. It sure does. I have it all the time. <laughs> all the time. So <laughs> yeah. that is your name, Benjamin Franklin. So we'll call you Ben for the interview. And I'm going to read a little bit about your book, Ben, which you have written. It's a very serious, obviously uh, more than serious, because it deals with some very traumatic experiences that you've had uh, when you were very young and unfortunately which plague a lot of young people today. You say the book Believing the Unbelievable relates a harrowing, gripping, and emotional true first-hand account from a victim of the cruel and inhumane tactics employed by the infamous Christian brothers in Ireland. It gives a raw and truthful from the heart account of the most horrific abuse imaginable bestowed on young children. Why write this account? Why, why did you dig so deep and deal with so much pain to relive this, to write this book? Well, for many, many, many years, people have been urging me to do so. And, um, you know, I have been extremely troubled over the years by the tormenting memories of my childhood. And I always uh, wished to be able to get things out, to be able to tell someone who might believe me and understand. So when I learned of the recent exposure relating to the industrial schools, I finally found the courage to write the story then. And the rewards from this, getting it all out, were tremendous. So it's been very I, healing for you, very therapeutic for you. Oh, absolutely. No doubt about it whatsoever. It's been the best thing I ever really did for me and for others which I'm pleased to say I felt I would be helping others to reveal similar experiences and uh, the response I've had from them is also tremendous especially from those who also suffered as young children and they, they told me that reading my book helped them to speak out too many of them by the way telephoned me from the USA where you are, Canada Australia UK, and of course, quite a lot from Ireland. All these unexpected responses made me feel it was even more worthwhile writing the book. For those who aren't familiar with the Christian Brothers regime, this cruelty that they perpetrated upon children, uh, tell us, give us a, an overview of that. Well, it's, it's, sometimes it becomes very difficult for me to do such things. As I, was, as I was writing more and more, it became easier for me because it was coming from the heart and flowing accordingly. And at times, 
it became cathartic. And I could still feel the, I could feel the inner peace developing and creating the healing process. And I, I, I really longed for that. So, it helped an awful lot of people to understand what really went on there. People who, who'd never heard about it before. So, I really don't know what else to say now, Steve. Well, what, what are the Christian brothers, what were they accused of doing? Horrendous abuse. Now, this, they were, uh, was this some kind of a home for children, or, you know, what, what was this about? Well, where I was, to give you an example, they were all similar. They were known as industrial schools, and they were set out mostly in the countrysides in Ireland. And the one, as an example, where I was, uh, was called um, St. Joseph's Industrial School in County Limerick, and of course, they were really institutions for ill-mannered and troublesome children. And the, the thing about that is, a lot of innocent children were put in amongst these other lads. And a lot of orphans, in fact, were put into these institutions, and they were indoctrinated as they went along. For instance, I can remember when I first went in there and, had, and learned, and saw rather, these other young lads coming towards me, looking, looking me up and down like I was an alien. They, um, they had thought of the institutions as their home, that's all they ever knew. So they couldn't understand me when I said, I've got to get out of here, I've got to escape, I couldn't stand this. And they said to me, it's great here, this is our home, what do you mean? So it was very, very, very disturbing very frightening to, to see these young lads in such a state. They were undoubtedly indoctrinated. And the Christian brothers were, and did for years, abuse most of these children in all sorts of horrendous ways. The beatings were horrendous. The savagery of some of the beatings was wicked. And of course the sexual abuse, I can't put that into words, that's uh, absolutely atrocious. How old that's, were you when you went into this uh, industrial school? Just 10 years old, and I spent five years in there. And up till that point, before you were 10, uh, were you living with your parents? I was living with my father, and did, all that would be revealed in the book, what happened there. But of course, my mother died when I was five, seven years old. And after my mother died, everything seemed to fall apart. And uh, my father couldn't handle things much. Things were very bad in Ireland then anyway. But he, he in truth, he offloaded me and my younger brother so that he could get out of the country and just leave us. It, it, you'd have to read the book to, to understand. I put it all in there understand really what happened and why we were put into that institution and nobody knew about it incidentally none of my relatives knew he kept it a secret that we were in there and again as i said it's all in the book explaining how we escaped and how i got a letter i smuggled a letter out of my uncle who eventually got us out a year earlier than we were supposed to because usually all boys would stay in there until they're 16 years of age and they wouldn't be released beforehand. And then they would be released out to strangers to walk on farms and whatever and get on with the rest of their lives from there. It's really, really a horrible story about a lot of these thousands and thousands of these young lads. What uh, years are we talking about here? From uh, what year to what year were you in this school? From 1950, 1952, approximately, 19, sometime in 1952 until 1957, late 1957, when I came out, I was just 15 years of age. So when you got out, when you were able to escape... 
what did you i mean uh you know how were you able to deal with life after going through such a traumatic uh suffering for those five years well for the first few years after coming out and going straight over to england a couple of days after release in search of my father for the next few years I really was trying to sort out what planet I was on. It was so strange to me. And I got a lot of help from people in England, I have to say, which, again, is all, it's all written in the book, what happened. But incidentally, when I was released at 15, I was very badly wounded. Uh, and I was just bandaged up and, then, and got no medical help or whatever. And two days after I arrived in England, the, the bleeding from the wound was getting more and more serious. And it was on my abdomen, by the way. And it was getting more and more serious and infection was setting in. And briefly, I collapsed this one day and this lady who saw me collapsing rang the ambulance. However, the, the doctors got me just in time to save my life. I was still only 15 and a few months old. So they, they, they released me in that state. When were, the, when were these schools shut down? When did they finally shut them down? And were any of the uh, people ever uh, charged with crimes? No, no, no. That, uh, they were shut down um, roughly 1990, 1970, I think. And the first began to be shut down, 1970. And uh, no, to date, no one has been charged. There has been a deal arranged with the Irish government and the religious. It's called an indemnity deal, which was carried out by them and agreed by them. And there's, there's, there's even uproar today in Ireland about all the arrangements they made between the religious and the government into covering up most of this. And even when we were, we were granted some compensation uh, with uh, a board that was set up uh, to listen to our stories and make an application for redress. And I am not allowed, if I may say so, Steve, I'm not allowed by law to discuss this too much with anyone about my application with the Redress Board. Uh, and also, I'm not allowed to discuss anything about claims or whatever, or even how much I was compensated. This is very, very, very disturbing what they have done in Ireland to enable us to to keep quiet. So over that period of time from 50, 1950 to 52 to 1970, how many, how many boys went through, the, went through this school? Oh, I wouldn't like to hazard a guess. Yeah, they, they were going through these schools for 30 to 40, for decades, I could say, prior to me going in and afterwards. So it's been going on for a long, long time. And of course, the Irish people knew of these things, or most of it, but they turned a blind eye. And again, may I say, in Ireland, the religious are all powerful. You dare not open your mouth, or you never did dare open your mouth, or say a thing against anyone connected with the religious because you would get in serious trouble, whether you were right or wrong. They, they were all powerful. In fact, I thought they were more powerful than the Irish government themselves, it seems, looking back, and all the, the research I've done on it now. You talk about the religious. Is this a, just one certain church, or just a, just a so-called religious people running the schools? The church, I would put it, with the knowledge I've got now, I, I blame the church, the Catholic Church in Ireland. Because they had overall um, charge of the Christian brothers, for instance, and the nuns and whatever. They were overall in charge of all the Catholic institutions. They oversaw it. 
along with the state. Together they oversaw the institutions run by the Christian brothers, and they turned the blind eye to. So the government uh, paid for these young boys to stay there? They did, and they were, they were sending in the money to them, yes, and of course, <coughs> the money was never spent by the Christian brothers that they received. They used the boys in hard labor to keep the, run, keep the running of the places, and they never got educated or anything like that. They walked on the farm. They, I walked on the farm there. And uh, we just had to do as we were told, and we were just viciously beaten if we refused. So the name school, they weren't schools at all. They were more like a prison. Yes, and there is a photograph in my book, and you'll see, and you'll read it in my book. It, it is built similar to a prison. It's got four walls, eight foot high. It had glass all the way across, cemented into the tops of the walls. There was no way out, only through the farm. And there was a farm attached to the school. It was uh, way out in the countryside with a lot of hills surrounding it. And there's a lot of horror stories. And this school in particular was named Glynn. Uh, I don't think I'm, I'm, right to, uh, I'm supposed to even mention that because I could get jailed for it. <laughs> but I'm not frightened about jail or anything like that, even though I've been threatened with it for saying too much. But, um, yes, the, this school was known as the School from Hell. Well, Ben, th- thank you for being on this special edition of iUniverse Radio, brought to you by Trafford Publishing. Uh, tell us how to get your book. Well, with, uh, you can get it through Amazon on the Internet. Amazon, and you can get it through Trafford on the internet, and most shops, I believe, bookshops, I presume. That's a bit out of my hands, actually. Well, thanks again, Ben. Thank you for sharing this personal story with us, and uh, we hope that it has been a blessing to you after all that you've been through in your life. Thank you so much for being with us. Okay, thank you for listening to me. That was Benjamin Franklin. He is the author of his book, Believing the Unbelievable, Surviving the Cruelty of the Christian Brothers Regime. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.